Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. You are the church of the living God, beloved by God the Father. You're the church that's been redeemed by the blood of the Son of God. And you are the church that is filled and even currently illumined by the Holy Spirit of the living God. So hear the word of the Lord, the vision of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. Two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the middle of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it'll be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. I want to meet God. I want to see the Lord. Well, you need to be careful what you wish for. What would it be like to see God? Any answer which most people would answer, any answer that has in it, it would be nice to see God, it would be warm and comforting to see God, it would, uh, it would be a, a sweet experience and all my difficulties and troubles would be taken away. Any answer that includes in it things like that, that person's talking about a God that they made up between their ears. They're not speaking about the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah is brought in to see God. And the last thing that he is is comforted. The last way he would describe it would be an enjoyable meeting. He's undone. He's wrecked. 
He feels like he should be dead. And notice when a human being meets God. If you notice in verse 1, what is most noticeable is what is not mentioned. I see in this text a profound reticence, like I'm covering my eyes. There's such a holding back because if you look at the text, it says, I saw the Lord. And then all we talk about is thrones and the back side of the back side of a robe. And we talk about angels. What of the Lord? Isaiah did see the Lord. But then again, when he left the event, he doesn't in any way really describe what he saw except thrones and robes and angels. It is true that no human can look on the Lord and live. And yet it's true that Isaiah saw the Lord. And we see in his reticence to describe what he saw of the Lord himself, how that paradox might fit. And while we learn about God in this chapter, I think we learn also about Isaiah. I don't think we really know how to get to know someone. I'm asked probably more than you would think I would be asked about my opinion of internet dating or asked by single people, you know, how can I get to know someone? Go out for coffee, tell your story of your testimony of your conversion. I think we get to know Isaiah here in Isaiah chapter six, and I actually think it's the best way that we could get to know anybody. The way that gets to the essential core of who somebody is. And if I really would know someone, then this is what I would know of them. What is their vision of God? What is their vision of God? I think we see into Isaiah's soul. I think we really know Isaiah because we see how Isaiah sees God. And we see his response to the vision of God. And church... I think we miss it because I think not only in the question of how we get to know someone else, but I I think you miss it because in the question of how do you know yourself? If you had to describe what is the most important thing about you, I think many of you would say, my kids, my grandkids, my marriage, the family I came from, the family I'm building, my loneliness because I don't have a family. So many ways that we could answer what is the most important thing about you right now. But none of those add up. One of my favorite lines from one of my favorite books, A.W. Tozer, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact, Tozer means the most predictive fact, 
the most predictive fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what in his deep heart he conceives God to be like. We all tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, we learn about God. But in Isaiah chapter 6, we learn about the man of God, Isaiah. And church, what I want to do in the few moments that we can spend in this chapter is I want to do nothing less than this. I want to show you how you might become a man of God. I want to show you from this text how you might become a woman of God. And we'll see it if we pay close attention to the text. What we see in Isaiah 6 is what it takes to be a man of God, what it takes to be a woman of God. And Racine Bible Church, we desperately need more women of God. We need more women in this church who are not fooled by the false identities of the world. We need women who know in the depth of their soul that the most important thing about them is who God is and their relationship with the living God. And Racine Bible Church, we are desperate for more men of God. Members of this church, male members of this church, men uh, of whom the world is not going to say, that guy has it together, that guy's powerful, that guy's good at everything. Men of whom this can be said, they are loyal to Jesus Christ. Men who are marked by a personal hatred of their own sin men who are marked by a quickness to say, I was wrong, I repent, please forgive me. Men who are marked by servant leadership in their homes, men who are faithful in their sacrificial participation in the bride of Christ, which is the church. And the only way that can happen, that we can have men of God, is if we have men in this church who have this vision of God. Isaiah 6 is a famous passage. It's, uh, we sing it in holy, holy, holy. It's read in churches pretty often. But today we get to understand it in its context, in the prophecy of Isaiah. It is the case that uh, your knowledge of the Bible is great, but it is also the case that when it comes to understanding the Bible, sometimes your previous knowledge of the Bible is a barrier to your understanding of the Bible because we abstract verses and then we feel a certain way about them, and then that verse sort of becomes to us the way that we feel about it, but that's not what the verse means in the way that the Holy Spirit stitched it together in the fabric of Scripture. So we need to see this chapter and these verses in the context of Isaiah. If Isaiah breaks into sections, chapters 1 through 12 is the first movement, and chapter 6 is the pinnacle of that movement. In the immediate context, 
Isaiah 6 is the answer to the question that has been pulsing in the book of Isaiah since the very beginning. The book of Isaiah begins with God saying this, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey knows its master, but Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. They are a sinful nation. They are loaded down with iniquity. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. What can be done with a people like that? We saw it in Isaiah 5 last week. Woe to those who call evil good, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. God's people have become so corrupt and so lost. How will God's people ever become the light to the nations that that she's supposed to be? In Isaiah 2, the light to the nations that it is promised she shall be. How do we get from there to here? This is the pattern that the prophecy is weaving. The only way to get there is a vision of God, a confession of sin, atonement for sin, and then a vibrant mission where God calls and his people respond What God is able to do for Isaiah in verse 7, atoning for his sin, uh, if, if 1 through 12 is the opening section, what God does for Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 7, the section ends with chapter 12, and verses 1 through 6 of chapter 12 are a, this beautiful poem about drawing water from the wells of salvation. It's an ark in that he, God does this for one man in Isaiah chapter 6. God does it for the entire people of God in Isaiah chapter 12. We see in the context here these words about the death of the king. Isaiah 6, 1, if you'd look at the text. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. King Uzziah reigned for 52 years, so this was the end of a very long era. Uzziah had contracted leprosy at the end of his reign because he had forgotten God's holiness. He had devalued God's holiness. He had despised God's holiness, though before he had been godly, in the end he despised God's holiness and he contracted leprosy. And then he died. And everyone thinks that's the biggest deal. I think Isaiah mentions that Uzziah died because, uh, so to speak, normal people the rumor of the, that everyone would be talking about was that on that year, the death of Uzziah was the biggest deal on earth. It was COVID. It was Ukraine. It was whatever the biggest deal on earth is. It's what we are, it's, what, it's what's spun up for us every four years where there's another election in our country. This is the biggest deal on earth. Isaiah says, King Uzziah died. And then he says, I saw the throne. King Uzziah died. That's the biggest deal on the earth. Isaiah saw the throne, which is the throne that is above the biggest deal on the earth. 
had a vision beyond the parameters and the horizons of this world which is passing away. Isaiah saw the throne that made the biggest deal on earth look like yesterday's reruns, look like nothing. This is why we need the prophecy of Isaiah in 2022. Because Isaiah had this vision and he clung to it. Sure, Uzziah is the king. The first reference to the king is the reference to King Uzziah. But then immediately it says he died. And then Isaiah sees the king. The king, high and lifted up. This is the mistake that we keep making. We zone in on our Uzziahs and our biggest deals on the earth. And we miss that there is a throne high and lifted up above all of it. This is the mistake God's people perpetually make. We look to the kings of the earth. And we have no vision for the king of kings and the Lord of lords who made heaven and earth. The problem is articulated in Isaiah 2, verse 22. If you haven't memorized Isaiah 2, verse 22 yet, you got to get it down. It's a good one. Stop regarding man. Stop regarding man. In whose nostrils, in whose nose is his breath. And it ends with a question. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is his breath. For of what account is he? We need Isaiah because we need this vision. We need Isaiah because we see the world falling apart and everyone around us believes that that's the biggest deal in the world. We see nations fracturing. In our precious church, we see families, relationships that are threatening to fracture. They're not reconciled as they ought to be. And we cannot fix these problems, which is to say we cannot fix these problems if the only thing we see is these problems and they are the biggest deal in the world to us. We can never fix these problems until we see God high and lifted up. And if God is spoken and if God has spoken and God is present and God brings us into his own presence then he leads us through restoration, repentance, and reconciliation. We need the vision of Isaiah because a confused world needs a clarified church and a doubting world needs a believing church and a fearful world needs a fearless church, a church that trusts God and fears God and therefore fears no man, no nation, no sword. The world needs to see a church that worships God and believes that this world is passing away along with all of its lusts and all of its relative unimportance. Then in verse two, we meet the seraphim, the angels. They have six wings, two, and then four. So with two of them, they work and serve, and the other four cover their face and cover their feet. They cover their face so they won't look directly at the Lord. So much reticence about seeing the Lord in this chapter that is about seeing the Lord. With two, they cover their face so they won't gaze directly at the Lord's glory. And with two, they cover their feet. As if to say, even though we're serving the Lord, 
Our feet are unworthy to serve the Lord and we cover them up. They, so to speak, fear God and worship God with four wings. They serve God with two. And notice how it says they cover their eyes and notice how it says that they cover their feet. Perhaps there's a hint here that there's a that there's a disavowal of any intention to see things the way that I see them. Not if I'm holy. I'm going to cover my own eyes. I will only see what God directs me to see. And perhaps there's a hint in covering their feet that there's a disavowal of ever choosing my own path I will only go where God sovereignly directs me to go by the speaking of his word. And notice who it is that's covering their eyes. There are uh, unfallen angels and fallen angels, right? Man and woman was created, and then we were created, and then we sinned. Well, it's really essentially the same thing with angels. Angels are created. They haven't lived forever. And though they were in heaven, Satan and those who chose to follow him, they sinned and they were kicked out of heaven. But there's the type of angels that weren't kicked out of heaven are unfallen. That is, they have never sinned. And the ones covering their eyes are not the angels covering their eyes because they know that they are unclean and sinful. I beg you to let this go down into the bottom of the synapses of your brain. If unfallen angels cannot look upon the glory of God with their eyes, then how could we? There's no sin in them. And yet they still cannot look upon God and endure it. This is a hint of what it means that he is holy. One called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The Hebrew language doesn't really have the superlative very to say he is very holy. The book of Genesis describing a deep pit doesn't say it was very deep. It says it was a pit, pit, pit. God is holy, holy, holy. How do we think of God? This God of whom the unfallen angels are unworthy of gazing upon. I want to correct you from ever thinking about God as the highest spot in, a underst- in an understandable chain of beings. Amoebas, snails, fish, birds. Put cats down there somewhere with the snails. And we ascend up, monkeys, whatever, to, 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 to humans. And then because it's biblical, we ascend up to angels. And then he, way higher up, there's God. It's not like that. It's not like that. The gap between a bird and you is explicable and understandable and comprehensible because a bird is a creature and you are a creature. 
the gap between a bird and God, the gap between you and God is inexplicable and infinite because he and he alone is holy, sovereign creator. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then notice what the text says. The whole earth is full of his glory. The zenith of this chapter is the holiness of God, the trihagion. And yet the next thing that is said is that the whole earth is filled with his glory. The only thing capable of filling the whole earth is his glory. The only thing capable of filling the whole earth is his glory. Everything else is finite creature. God alone is holy creator, other, infinite and majestic. What is Isaiah's response? If this is how we get to know Isaiah and the most important thing about someone is their vision of God, then what is Isaiah's response to this authentic vision of God? Verse five, I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah chapter six, verse five, is the first time in the book of Isaiah that Isaiah speaks as Isaiah. And the first thing that he says is paradigmatic of his, the entirety of his identity and his personality. His first words are the only response to the greatness of God that a man of God or a woman of God could ever speak. And Isaiah's first words are the foundation of a powerful ministry that will last and they are words of self-renunciation. They are words of self-despair. They are words of desperation that find the only hope, the only answer in God. I am unclean, I am unworthy, I'm incapable of serving you the way these seraphim do, and it is remarkable to see Isaiah identify himself so completely with dirty, iniquitous Israel, and yet he does. By seeing this, we see into Isaiah's soul. We see him as he is, and we see the most important thing about him. Because the most important thing about you is your vision of God and your subsequent relationship to God and with God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, one of the most important verses in the entirety of this long prophecy. I'll summarize it in a sentence. When Isaiah met God, there was nothing in him that was not overpowered by the presence of God. When Isaiah met God, there was nothing in him that was not overpowered by God's presence, or to say it positively, when Isaiah met God, everything in him present, past, future, everything in him was overpowered by God's presence. What this means is, you want to be a woman of God? You want to be a man of God? 
That's, th this is what this means. There is no feeling or emotion in you that cannot be overcome by the presence of God. There is no preference or opinion in you that should not be overcome by the presence of God. I'm talking about all your assumptions. I'm talking about the narrative that you keep telling yourself of how people treated you and why you ended up the way that you are. I'm, I'm talking about everything that you tell yourself about yourself, about your present, about your past, about your future. Every preference, every opinion, every plan, every memory, every hope must be overcome by the reality of the presence of God. What you say to yourself about yourself is not true. Who God is is true. And what God is going to say to you is true. Would you repent and believe everything that God has said? Isaiah is utterly undone. Before the end of the chapter, he's utterly redone and rebuilt, becomes a servant of God. But first, he must say, and we must say, woe is me, I am lost. I have unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That's a mark of a woman or man of God. Notice that he says in verse five twice that he's unclean. Can we understand this by, sometimes you understand it by uh, laying out a menu of true things that could have been said that were not said. In Isaiah chapter six, verse five, Isaiah doesn't say, woe is me, for I am finite in the presence of the infinite. Isaiah doesn't say, woe is me, for I am mortal in the presence of the immortal. Isaiah doesn't say, woe is me, for I am weak in the presence of the all-powerful. Isaiah doesn't say, woe is me, for I have little knowledge in the presence of the omniscient. Though he could have said all of that. What Isaiah says is, woe is me, for I am filthy. I'm perverse. I am morally impure in the presence of a holy God. That's what he says. This is what godly people will always say. It's the biggest cartoon version of godliness. Jesus punctured this cartoon over and over in the gospels. The cartoon was the Pharisees and the Sadducees that godly people walk around saying what? How godly they are and how ungodly everyone else is. And, and the Old Testament right into the New punctures that caricature time and time and time again. You will never get anywhere spiritually until you stop putting yourself above other people and putting yourself above God. A couple nights ago, I had dinner with um, one of our elders. And we were talking about, a, there's a lot of difficult shepherding situations in the church. And if you had been in the booth near us and you had been gossipy and <laughs> eavesdropping, I suppose you would have heard us talk about a couple of difficult shepherding issues in our church, but I promise you this you would have heard me talking to this friend of mine about my own sin 
and you would have heard him talking to me about his own sin and failure. There's no way that I can do anything to help anyone else if I'm not confessing my own sin. You are getting somewhere spiritually when you stop putting yourself above other people and you stop putting yourself above God. And look what happens when Isaiah confesses his sinfulness. Verses six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt, your guilt, your guilt is taken away. And your sin, your, your sin atoned for. A seraphim have this rotating flight path around the throne and then one seraph peels off that flight path and he has a new trajectory and he goes down in the smoke to the altar and as Isaiah watches, perhaps terrified, the seraph leaves the altar and his new flight path is directly back to Isaiah's face and that burning altar is pressed into the flesh of his own lips. This is the coal from the altar of atonement in the book of Leviticus. This coal represents atonement for sin, the burning away of sin. The altar represents the provision of God through sacrifice. Isaiah sees it here in shadow. He will see it in substance in Isaiah 53. And then we will see beyond that the fullness of the substance coming up soon. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter. Notice that the cleansing of the sinner is not accomplished by the efforts of the sinner. You get me? Notice the cleansing of the sinner is not accomplished by the efforts of the sinner. Notice the text. He flew to me. Notice the text. He touched me. Notice the text. He said to me. I didn't fly to him. I didn't touch him. And I didn't tell him what to do. There's no self-righteousness here. There's no meritorious obedience here. It is all of sovereign grace. There is grace. There is grace of salvation in both the old covenant and the new. We'll end our exposition in verse 8 today. But I want to give you a brief explanation of verses 9 through 13 because... Uh, it's intriguing what they mean. We may, we may cover them more next time. I don't know. But uh, we'll end in verse 8. But if you look ahead to verse 9 through 13, what a strange call to ministry. Isaiah's like, okay, I'll go. And then God says, go. And what? Verse 9. These people will hear, but they won't understand. And their hearts will be hard. What a strange call to ministry. God says, I have personally called you into ministry. I've commissioned this angel to prepare you for ministry and your ministry shall be from an earthly's point of view an utter failure. I've called you to teach. God says, I've called you to teach and I promise nobody gonna learn nothing from you. What? God says, 
Your teaching will harden their hearts. But don't quit. And don't regret it. For I have called you. I think this goes back to God's holiness. I think this goes back to God's holiness. God's otherness. God's transcendence. God's aboveness. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. If we get called into ministry, we have thoughts and plans about what a successful ministry would look like. If you're called to parent, you have thoughts and plans of what parenting will look like. If you're called to a job, you have thoughts and plans for what that ought to be. And God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My plans are not your plans. And my definition of success is not your definition of success. And when you work, if you will regard me as holy, you will continue to serve me no matter what. If your earthly hopes become shattered, if what you thought would happen doesn't happen, that is only more proof. Beloved, broken-hearted wife, mother, beloved, broken-hearted elder of the church, if what you want to happen doesn't happen, that is only more proof that God is beyond and above anything that you could ever comprehend. So don't despair. Don't give up. And don't lose heart. I invite you to lose heart in your own plans. I invite you to despair in your own dreams of what you wish your family ought to be. Go ahead and let those go, but do not despair because God is on the throne and he is holy. And he hasn't forgotten you, those of you who are called, and he never will. I think that's a hint of what 9 to 13 is getting at. But if we could dial into verse 8 to summarize what we're learning here about being a man of God or a woman of God. After the seraphim flies to him, takes away the guilt of his sin, verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am send me. Having seen the holiness of God, having heard the, the trihagion tri, three times repeated, and having responded, I'm undone, I'm unworthy, Isaiah's desperate plea draws from God that God commissions this angel to go to the altar to bring God's chosen atonement for Isaiah, and this cleanses Isaiah. And then when Isaiah's mouth is touched, Notice in the text, verse 7, he touched my mouth. And notice in verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, and then also in verse 8, then I said. Notice, he touches his mouth. If we were drawing a straight through line, we would say, well, once his mouth is touched, then he's ready to talk. That's not what the text says. Once his mouth is touched, then his ears are opened. Once his mouth is touched, the range of his hearing is extended. What he was deaf to, he now hears. And what he hears is the word of God. Now he hears the voice of God. He hears the voice of God. 
And then his response is pure and unembellished. Whatever you say, I'll do. Wherever you send me, I'll go. Notice the importance of hearing the word of God. This, this, is, this is everything to us. This, I don't know how many hills we'll die on, but we'll die on this one. We're a church that wants to hear the word of God. When someone's situation is totally broken and out of control, the only way we know how to counsel them is with the word of God. When we're calling and commissioning someone in a ministry, the only way we do that is with the word of God. And when we are cleansed, it opens our ears to truly hear the word of God. You hear the word and then you speak. Too many speak when they have given a superficial hearing to the word of God. This is, as candidly as I can tell you, this is my opinion of counseling for sinners who need help that doesn't use the Bible. They're speaking words, but they're not hearing the word of God. To the, the open secret of how to do life and ministry is Isaiah 66 two. another one to memorize. Isaiah 66 two, not a complicated verse. God says, to this one I will look. What a, what a wonderful thing for God to say. You want to know how to live, do life and ministry? Here it is. To this one I will look, says the Lord God, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. The one who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So what have we seen, precious church? We've seen that when God prepares you to climb high, he knocks you lower than you ever thought you could go. We've seen that when God prepares you to do something that he calls great, he will show you how very, very needy you are. We've seen how God's holiness is personally devastating, but it doesn't end in a devastation that ends in emptiness. God's holiness is meant to burn away your self-imposed narrative about who you are and who you want to be, but it doesn't leave you with nothing. You are redrawn and rebuilt into the very commissioning of God where God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. So to summarize Isaiah 6, how to be a man of God, how to be a woman of God. And these four truths, I'm telling you, they count for the nine-year-olds in here right now. And they count for the 90-year-olds in here right now. They count for the elders of this congregation who are present here. And they count for those of you who have only been here two weeks. You're not even a member of the church yet. These four facets of being a man of God. Number one, high or great or grand. A higher vision of God. A greater vision of God. A grander vision of God. Number one, a higher vision of God. Number two, deep a deeper conviction of my own sin. A deeper conviction of my own sin. Number three, receive. Receive atonement. Receive cleansing. 
Receive redemption. Receive the altar from the coal. Receive the coal from the altar. Receive the, the, the lamb of God. And number four, respond. Here I am, send me. Once you have a grand vision of God and a deep confession of your own sin and you have genuinely received the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only response is whatever you say, wherever you send me, whatever you call me to do, there's a willingness. There's a total obedience, whatever, whenever, however. Even if as nine through 13 shows, it's not gonna add up with my happy plans for my own future. God's holy plans are better. They're more painful. They call, they call for more sacrifice, but they're far better than my plans for me ever would have been. As we conclude this chapter, I wanna lead you in a little prayer, so let's bow together for prayer. In church, I just want to lead you through praying through these four features of becoming a man of God or a woman of God. A greater vision of God. Would you say, would you pray something like, God, I need a greater vision of you. God, my, my own thoughts have guided me too much. Perhaps the way others have sinned against me has become too great in my eyes. Perhaps it's just worthless entertainment of the world, March Madness, whatever. God, I, I need a greater vision of you. Second, would you ask God for a deeper conviction of sin? And thirdly, we pray about our receiving the gospel. Living God, I pray for those church members here who have received your gospel confirm it again in their hearts. And living God, we lift up now in prayer those who are present in this room who have never received the gospel. Their sin is yet laying on them. It hasn't been burned away at the altar. Lord, bring them to Jesus Christ today that they might receive your gospel. And then fourth, responding to God is with a heart that says, here I am, send me. Would you be so crazy bold as to pray that? God, I'm, God, I admit I'm unsure. I admit I'm a little scared. But God, I don't want to plan the path of my own feet. As it were, I want wings to cover my feet so they don't just go where I want to go. God, send me where you want me to go. 
God, call me to what you are calling me to. Your plans are better than mine. Your ways are wiser than mine. I submit to you wholeheartedly. Heavenly Father, hear your children as they pray. And as a good and compassionate father, forgive, restore, equip, and bless your children. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.